Exodus chapter 20 will be our text as we continue to look this Lord's Day at the Ten Commandments. We come today to the Sixth Commandment. If you've been with us, you know that we've talked about how when Jesus summarizes the law, He talks about how we are called to, to love God and to love others. And you can really break the commandments down into those sets. We see in the first four, uh, they talk about our relationship with God and what it means to truly love God. And that, of course, is the foundation then for the following six commandments where we learn what it means to love our neighbor. And so we looked last Lord's Day as we came to the fifth commandment to honor our father and our mother. We talked about how God has given us this gift of family uh, for, his, for His glory and for our good and how uh, loving our neighbor begins with loving those in our family God has given us. And we talked even about how Christ gives us a new eternal family, how we in this room in Christ are brothers and sisters, that, that we are the family of God. And so we're going to continue to, to look at what it means to love our neighbor today by looking at this sixth commandment, the commandment that we should not murder. And so to look at it in its context, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us. Remembering again the context, God has led His people out of their captivity and their slavery. They've spent centuries there in Egypt. And now as He is leading a free people to a land of promise, He's giving them His Word. And this is what His Word tells us. Exodus 20, beginning there in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. If you would pray with me. Father God, we do come to you in the name of Christ asking that You might bless this Word today, that You might help us to better understand it, and through it that we might better understand who You are, who You've created us to be, and how Jesus transforms this commandment, this commandment that we should not murder. That You do this work we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I've shared before that from my evangelistic training many years ago, I've learned to ask a couple of diagnostic questions when I talk to people about the gospel. We call them the, the Kennedy questions. They come from an evangelism training that was put together years ago by D. James Kennedy, who's 
long since passed, but but in his church they did this training and it called on to many believers and I was given this training in the church I was involved in as a young believer. Now, these Kennedy questions are diagnostic questions. They help us to understand better the person we're talking to and, and what they're ultimately putting their hope and faith in for eternity. And so it goes something like this. As you're having a spiritual conversation with someone, you ask the question, if your life were to end today, and you were to stand before a holy God, and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to Him? And then the second question is a follow-up question. Based on the answer you give, how sure are you that He would welcome you in? See, when we ask those two questions, we find out very quickly what someone is placing their hope in and their trust in. And what I've found in asking those questions hundreds of times, and asking those questions throughout this nation and throughout many nations. I found that universally, people are putting their hope and their trust in works. And not just in what they do, but putting their hope and their faith in what they have not done. But in all the times I've asked those questions, and all the times I've asked people, if you were to stand before God and He were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I've never had someone say to me that they would say to God, well, I've never taken the Lord's name in vain. I've never had someone say to me, well, I would say, I, I never coveted my neighbor's things. I've never had someone say to me, well, I would tell God, I've always honored my father and mother. But friends, I have heard over and over and over and over again people say, well, I've never killed anyone. It is the commandment that seems to be the most comfortable for us. It is the one that so often we feel the farthest removed from. It is the commandment, you should not murder, that so many feel, well, at least I've met the bar. At least I've done this. I may have failed in these other areas, taken the Lord's name in vain, coveted my neighbor's things, not honored my father and mother, but you know what? I've never killed anybody. And hopefully that'll be good enough to get in. This is the commandment that we feel we're so far removed from. But as we consider it today in light of the gospel, I want us to consider that we may not be as far removed from it as we think we are. In fact, I think that what we find when we come to this commandment, you shall not murder, is that for as many of us who say, well, at least I've never killed anyone, we live among a culture that seems fixated on killing. We live in a murderous generation and a murderous culture. In fact, statistically worldwide today, someone will be murdered, not, not just die, someone will be murdered about every 60 seconds. Today and tomorrow and the next day and the next. That comes to about a half a million people every year worldwide who are murdered. You look closer to home and it seems that you can't go a week without turning on the news and find news about a rising homicide rate, news about the latest murder. We see in our own community the news of unsolved murders. And it's not just these murders that catch our attention. We find that our culture and the media and what we place in front of us is growing more and more violent. The most popular television shows today in our culture 
are those that are fixated on violence. Those that are fixated on criminals and on crimes. At least we think that these are just what mature adults are watching. I read this statistic just this week. According to the American Psychological Association, by the time the average child finishes elementary school, he or she would have watched 8,000 televised murders and over 100,000 acts of on-screen violence. You couple that with the sophisticated graphics that we now have in video games where a child can sit in their room and peer through a sniper's rifle and see mass carnage in front of them in real-life ways. For a people who say, well, at least I've never killed anybody, perhaps we are closer to this commandment than we think we are. God says to us, you shall not murder And so what can we learn from that today? Well, I want to approach this commandment as we have the previous five by asking three questions. The first, what does this commandment teach us about God and the character of God? Second, what does this commandment teach us about ourselves, about man and the heart of man? And third, ultimately, how does Jesus, how does the gospel transform this commandment? And so we'll begin with that first commandment, that first question, how does the sixth commandment teach us about God what does it teach us about God well that's the first point there in your outline it teaches us it reminds us that God is sovereign over life and death God is sovereign over life and death as we come to this sixth word of these ten words we are reminded when we read you shall not murder that ultimately God is the one who is sovereign God is the one who is providential God is the one who has ultimate authority Here, as we come to the Sixth Commandment, you may notice that it's much shorter than the previous five. In the ESV translation, you have four words, but in the original Hebrew, there's actually only two words here translated, don't kill. Two words, focusing on that one word, the Hebrew word for kill. But there's actually eight Hebrew words for kill. And the word here is used very selectively, very purposefully. And it helps us to clarify exactly what God is saying here because there's been much confusion about this Sixth Commandment. Much confusion when it comes to, well, how can God say on one hand, do not murder, do not kill, and yet at the same time, at times, order His people to kill? How is that consistent? Well, it comes down to a better understanding of the language. You see, the word used here for kill in Exodus 20.13 is never used in the legal sense. It's never used to describe capital punishment. That's a different word that's used in the Hebrew language. It's never used in reference to the military. That's a different word used in the Hebrew language. So the word used here in verse 13 is a word that is used exclusively in the sense of God forbidding the unlawful killing of a human being. It's not a reference here to animals and killing animals. There's a different word used for that. This word is used in particular about taking an innocent life through murder and even through involuntary manslaughter. And so what the Sixth Commandment forbids then is the unjust taking of someone's life. It applies to murder in cold blood. It applies to manslaughter with passionate rage. It applies to negligent homicide resulting from recklessness or carelessness. God tells us, you shall not murder. 
And God can tell us this. He can give this command because God is the one who is sovereign over life and sovereign over death. As I have with the previous commandments, I call your attention to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we're reminded that God is sovereign and God is creator. In the beginning was God. And God created all things. And in creating all things, God created man. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And the question, the age-old question is, why? People ask that question all the time, don't they? Why am I here? Why did God put me here? Why did God create me? Why did God create any of us? Well, the Scripture answers that question for us. Isaiah 43, verse 7 says that God created us for His glory. That's important to understand because so often when we ask the question, why are we here, we ask it in a very self-centered way. We ask it in a sense of, I need to find personal fulfillment. Why am I here? The Scripture points us towards understanding that question in the context of our Creator God. Why are we here? To glorify God. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And so we see very clearly in God's Word that man, human beings, were created in the image of God For the glory of God. Therefore, when we murder, we murder an image bearer of God. When we murder, we murder an image bearer of God created for the glory of God. So, murder is not just an assault on man. Murder is an assault on God and on God's glory. And that's why God says so clearly, so plainly, you shall not murder. He is the one who is sovereign over life, and He takes life very seriously. In fact, we see throughout God's Word that God places a very different value on human life than He does on any other type of living thing. We live in a culture that celebrates that all life is precious. The Scripture is very clear that that human life is exceptionally precious. And that's important for us to know. Perhaps you have seen, as I have over the last few years, some billboards that have popped up, particularly here in the southeast, sponsored by the people for the ethical treatment of animals. On this billboard is a giant butcher's knife with dripping blood, and in the blood it says on it, Thou shalt not kill. This is not in the context of Exodus 20. Underneath that knife reads the small print, love animals, don't eat them. Now I'm sure that many of us here today think, well that's a, that's a pretty small portion of our society. Well, consider this, just two years ago a 2015 Gallup poll revealed that 32% of Americans want animals to have the same rights as people. Now, now here's what this means. This means that 32%, a third of our culture, perhaps some of you this morning, would take great offense 
had you driven past my house two weeks ago and saw me in the front yard with a shotgun blowing the head off of a snake. That means there is a significant portion of our culture that would look at that act as murder. That would look to that snake and say, oh no, you can't kill that snake because that snake has rights. Animals should have rights. We live in a culture that is fulfilling the Word that says we will elevate the creation above the Creator. And in specific, that wants to elevate creation to the same level as human beings. And God says, no, I have created man in My image for My glory. But we should be caretakers for all of creation. But we need to be careful in the culture we live in that we understand that while the culture says all life is precious, the Word says, yes, all life is created by God, but it is only human life that is created in the image of God. And as such, God places a great value on human life. In fact, we see in the Word as God creates in Genesis 1 and 2 as man falls in Genesis 3 as murder comes on the stage in Genesis 4 as it spreads rapidly throughout the earth. God brings a flood. He, he, he wipes the earth clean. But in that, He preserves a remnant of Noah and his family. And as Noah and his family get off of the ark and begin to again be fruitful and multiply, God gives a specific word in regards to the value of life. Genesis chapter 9. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And hear the context here. God is not looking to man saying, if you take man's life, your life should be taken because man is so special in and of himself. What God is saying is that because man bears his image, because man is created for the sole purpose to glorify him, that when you rob God of that glory, when you destroy that which is made in his image, when you take an innocent life, the price of that is your life. And so God in Genesis 9 institutes capital punishment. We see not only that, we see in the Old Testament how are there are times where God calls for killing in war. Again, a, a different word here, different context that we see in Exodus 20.13, but, but the way that we reconcile these things, on one hand God says you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't kill, and at the same time commands His people to kill, is one, that we see God is the sovereign one, He's the one that calls the shots, but two, we see that God orders for the just killing at times of wickedness and evil for the sake of His glory and the sake of goodness. God calls His people to wipe out wickedness before that wickedness and evil might attempt to wipe out God's people. And we see this carries over even into our day today. And God no longer calls us as a church to be the one that bears the sword. God has given us a government. He's given us authorities. And He has called that governing authority to bear the sword. Romans 13 verse 4, For He, speaking of the governing authorities, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. 
For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so we see that God places such an immense value on those who bear His image and are created for His glory that He requires blood for blood. He is sovereign over life and death. Your friends, recognize this. He is sovereign over life and death, not you and I. God is sovereign over life and death, not man. And here's where we see our sin so taint things. Which brings us to this second question. What does this commandment teach us about the heart of man? Point two. What helps us to see that man's rebellion against God has created a culture of death. Man's rebellion against God has created a culture of death. And we see this not just in our current age and the ways I described earlier in our culture of killing. We see this all the way back in creation. And we see that just after Adam and Eve sin, as they have their family, that the very first sin that the Scripture describes to us in Genesis chapter 4 is Cain killing his brother Abel. He murders him. In anger and in jealousy, he kills his brother. And perhaps he feels some shame there. We don't see a picture of Cain going to God in any repentant way or Cain revealing his sin to God. It's God who confronts Cain. But just in that chapter, from the beginning to the end, we get to the point where one of Cain's descendants, a man named Lamech, he is boasting about those he's killed. He is actually singing about one he has murdered. He says this one did something wrong against him. He wounded him. And so he killed him we see this culture of death spread throughout the scripture and we see this culture of death spread throughout our culture and we come to the day and age we live in where friends we have experienced in the last 100 years death on an unprecedented scale in our world I would imagine that if you were to be asked about the atrocities that have taken place in the last hundred years, perhaps the first one that would come to mind would be the Holocaust. Adolf Hitler and the Nazi dictator who was responsible for the Holocaust was responsible for 30 million deaths. But he wasn't even the worst offender in the last hundred years. Before him we had Joseph Stalin, that communist leader of the Soviet Union who through his labor and death camps, was responsible for 40 million deaths. And yet he wasn't the worst offender. The worst mass murderer over the last 100 years, in fact, the worst mass murderer in history, was a Chinese dictator, Mao Zedong, who through his atrocities and his regime is responsible for the deaths of 60 million people. So just consider this for a moment. From, from three men, 130 million deaths. We live under this notion that somehow we're going to stand before God, so many of us, and say, well, I've never killed anyone. And perhaps we still feel that comfort, even considering men like this, because we look at that and say, well, I'm, I'm no dictator. <laughs> I'm no Hitler, I'm no Mao, no Stalin. But friends, we see atrocities just as great, if not far worse, happening all around us every day. 
not so much in labor camps or death camps, but in the offices of Planned Parenthood and hospitals around our world. Since 1973, when abortion was legalized in the United States, approximately 60 million children have been killed. Consider this. There are about four and a half million people in Kentucky. So you just picture that map for a second. You, you picture that, that commonwealth we live in. You, you picture a bunch of dots on that. Four and a half million people. And then you have to have 12 more of those surrounding it to get 60 million. But that number pales in comparison to what's happened worldwide. It's estimated that 1.72 billion children have been aborted over the last 40 years around the world. But let the gravity of that number for a moment. 1.72 billion. You look at Kentucky. Let's look at the United States. Let's picture... 320 million people. That's what we have in the United States. And then let's multiply our nation by five. Friends, we live in a culture where it is safer for you to be in the egg of a sea turtle than in a mother's womb. The federal government has established fines up to $100,000 and a year in prison for tampering with a marine turtle nest or egg. And that same federal government since 1973 said it is perfectly legal to kill a child in their mother's womb. When we fail to recognize human life is created in the image of God, for the glory of God, there is no end to what we will do. We think we have seen carnage in the last hundred years. You wait for the next hundred years. And as the capability of wicked men only grows, what will become of us? God looks down on His people. And the psalmist in 139 cries out, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. We see this psalmist like so many other phrases and verses from the Scripture tell us life is special. Human life is special. Created in the image of God for the glory of God. And so God says we shall not murder. But again, we... We have comfort here. We have distance here. We may think this morning, well, I'm not an evil dictator. I don't support abortion. I don't endorse abortion. I think that is a wicked thing. Therefore, I'm no Cain. I'm no Lamech. What about us? Well, Jesus says we still have a problem. We read His words earlier in Matthew chapter 5. I'll read them again. You have heard it said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. And to that we say, Amen. You know, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, they deserve judgment. The abortion doctor deserves judgment. Amen, Jesus. 
Jesus wasn't done. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Kind of wish you had stopped at that first one, don't you? You ever been angry with your brother? Your sister? You ever been angry? I mean, if we had a little open mic cheering time right now, let's just talk about this morning. Getting ready for church. Got to get out the door, come on! What's wrong with you people? It's the same thing every Sunday. Same time this week as it was last time, folks. Sitting in the car. I'm sure nobody in this room would ever sit in the car and start honking the horn. Just by word of personal confession, that doesn't happen to me at all because we drive separate and have to be here for both services. So let's, let's say this, though. Oh, no, 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 let's see. I haven't, I haven't really struggled with anger so much. So maybe there's a small percentage in here who says, okay, I, I haven't murdered and I haven't really been angry. I'm doing pretty good. But Jesus keeps going. He digs in. What's he say? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You ever call somebody a fool? I tell you, I do good on the getting ready for church thing. I don't do so good on this one. I called one of my well, multiple children the other night. I called them fools. And I didn't do it in a righteous way. Now, how many times have you thought, as you were watching the news or even hearing a story about somebody or even watching somebody pass by, how many times has the thought entered your mind, what a fool. And look what Jesus does with this. He doesn't just say that's wrong. He says in this same passage that Mao and Stalin and Hitler are liable to judgment and you who struggle with anger and who have called someone a fool are liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says here, that the playing ground is even and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says here that the wages of sin indeed are death. He says here that no one of us will stand before God one day and plead our case and talk about how good we are or how bad we were not. He said if we've even thought of someone as a fool, we deserve Jesus transforms this commandment by showing us that this is not a comfortable commandment. And He transforms this commandment by showing us it's not far away. It is in our face. And He shows us that the sixth commandment likely among the ten is likely the one that we struggle with the most, not the least. But that's not all He does. Because if that were all Jesus did with this commandment, we have no hope. We have no joy. We have no reason to sing. We're, we're eternally lost if that's all we have. You know, Jesus continues to transform this. And that third point there in your outline, by doing this, Jesus conquers death and gives us eternal life. 
Jesus comes with this commandment and says, oh, you think you've met this bar? No, the bar is far higher. You deserve death. You're all sinners. You deserve God's wrath. But I'm going to conquer sin and death. I'm going to take on God's wrath so that you might have eternal life. Consider John 10, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So Jesus, He, he gives this imagery so often that, that He is the shepherd and that, that, that we are the sheep and that we're following the shepherd. But we're not the only shepherd. He says there are some shepherds who are false teachers, false prophets, lead the sheep astray. In fact, he says this, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So what about all those false teachers? He said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. These false teachers, false prophets, Jesus also says at times that they are sons of the devil, children of the devil, doing their father's will. And what is their father's will? What is the devil's will? It is to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says this is the thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so friends, that, that is, that's good news. Because Jesus laid his life down. That's good news because as one commentator said, Jesus didn't take someone else's life. He, he gave his own. So Jesus, who was unjustly accused, could have justly responded and could have struck down his accuser. Jesus is holy. He is righteous. And just the very presence of unrighteousness and unholiness in His accusers with one word, boom, He could take them out. Justly. No, Jesus when struck didn't strike back. And friends, we better pay attention to this. Because we live in a culture we live at times among those who even profess to be Christians who will say what? You hit me and I hit you twice as hard. Friends, that is anti-gospel and that is anti-Christ. Because Christ said what? You hit me and you can hit me again. He said, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn and let them hit you on the other cheek. He says, vengeance is not ours, it is His. And so this, this thought of retaliation, of anger, what does it reveal in our heart? Murder. Reveals that we will call people fools. That we will murder them in our heart. And Christ said we do the opposite. Jesus didn't take someone else's life. He gave His own. Why? That we might have life. 
to the glory of God, we have Romans 5.8 that tells us God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did He die? Because He is the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. And so this commandment brings us to a counter-culture question. Will we live for self and sin? And in doing so, experience an eternal death? Or will we die to self and sin, and in doing so, experience eternal life? And so rather than me posing a list of questions to you as a response introduction, I'll give you a question that Jesus Himself gave as we go into our time of response. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, and Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses or forfeits himself. Friends, you can die to self and sin and receive eternal life, or you can live for self and sin and receive eternal death. This is what we're called to consider as we come to this time of response. If you would stand together as I pray for us, as we prepare to respond to God's Word. Father, you show us clearly in your word that this commandment that so often we feel the most comfortable with is really the commandment that should bring us great discomfort. You show us that while we may feel that we could say we have not killed in our heart, we have. But the good news of the gospel, the gospel we sang of earlier in our service is that the vilest of offenders can plead the blood of Christ. And that you issue full pardon for those who will repent and have faith. And so Lord, I pray for any this morning who have yet to experience that pardon. I pray for those who are living for sin and self. And who are in danger of eternal death and wrath. I pray God that they might see the glory and goodness of the gospel. And Lord, that today they would repent. I pray God for those of us who have or are struggling with anger, struggling with looking to a fellow image bearer and calling them a fool, struggling with a lack of forgiveness in our heart, even though you have forgiven us. God, I pray that you would help us to repent of these things and that we would see the truth of the gospel and that we would not only respond to that gospel in faith and repentance, but that we would share that gospel with others in faith and in action. Father, help us to see that we are indeed murderers, but that the gospel is for murderers such as we. Thank you for your grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.